Have you heard the news? The Irish Independent has a new podcast. Thousands of people who work in the events industry are making more noise than ever. But are they being listened to? 20 minutes, five days a week, the Indo Daily takes you beyond the headlines and into Ireland's most talked about stories. Two gangs, 18 people killed, families torn apart. The Indo Daily podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, independent.ie and wherever you get your podcasts. They used him almost like a sort of poster boy for the PSNI and that almost painted a target on the back of Pater Heffron's back. The dissidents were almost purposely target members of their own community as a warning to say, if you join these people, well, we will consider you a legitimate target. Legacy investigations into historic killings during the Troubles remained in the hands of the PSNI, and the PSNI were not considered independent brokers by many people. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A vision for a new police force in Northern Ireland, 20 years after Chris Patton's groundbreaking report, identified a need for a 50-50 recruitment policy for Catholics and Protestants, has failed to live up to expectations. Last year, of the 193 new recruits, just 24% were Catholic. Blamed in no small part, on dissident Republicans deliberately targeting officers and their families from working-class nationalist communities. Today, I'm talking to Alison Morris of the Belfast Telegraph about plans for a new recruitment drive to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the PSNI and the continued efforts to create a more inclusive force. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Alison, I noticed in one of your pieces there that in 1976, which was, I was two at the time, only 5% of the RUC were Catholic. Yeah, and as part of the the 20th anniversary, I interviewed Peter Sheridan, who remains to this day the person who claimed to the highest rank as a Catholic member of the RUC and PSNI. And when he joined, it was 5% Catholic. And he actually said, he would argue that among those 5%, there were people who were literally Catholic in name only. They weren't practicing Catholics. So when it came to people who were act- actively practicing Catholics, it probably reduced down to even further to probably the tier three, tier three percent. Now, this is very relevant because it's 20 years since the Patton Report, um, which is a key part of the peace process and which was all about the transformation of the RUC into the PSNI, the change of name and how it was going to change with this evolving peaceful society. And part of it was an aspiration to have a 50-50 essentially police force. So not that there are other people of other religions and various things (laughs) in the world and in the North, but it was sort of an aspiration that you'd have, you'd go from that 5% in 1976 to 50% now. but it hasn't quite played out that way. Yeah, so in those sort of days of those peace negotiations, I think it was realised quite early on that the local parties were just unable to deal with police, that it was too big a hurdle for them to overcome. At that point, they brought in an independent commission who were going to look at policing, and that included Chris Patton, who is now Lord Patton, who went on to be the governor of Hong Kong during the, the handover of that. They came up with a report that had 175 recommendations 
the majority of them, probably I would say maybe 150 of them, maybe not that controversial, just how to modernize the police force. But among the ones that were controversial was that the RUC in its current form could no longer go on, that the name of the RUC just had too, too many connotations in terms of the nationalist community and how they viewed them, that they would change it to the new police force of Northern Ireland, the police service sorry, of Northern Ireland, and the uniform would change, the logos would change, and most controversially, they would introduce 50-50 recruitment, which was a positive discrimination. You know, we've seen positive discrimination in other post-conflict societies. South Africa would have had positive discrimination. We've seen it in other places in terms of trying to get more recruits from minority communities. Um, and at the start, that seemed like it was going to be a successful way of getting what they called a critical mass of people from the nationalist and Catholic community to join the PSNI. I remember it very well. I I worked a Sunday shift that Sunday um, in the I was in a, a local newspaper at the time. I had spoken to people about what they thought. I was working in a, a newspaper that was in a very sort of nationalist community. A lot of the people had, you know, people belonged to them had maybe been shot dead by the RUC or they had, you know, difficult stories. They all spoke of their hope. That day I went home the next morning I came into work and when I phoned the press office of the police, someone answered and said, you know, Police Service of Northern Ireland instead of RUC. It was very funny because the old RUC press office was manned by actual police officers, like for, like RUC officers, people sort of coming near the end of their career who didn't want to go out and about on the beat anymore. Now, obviously, that's all civilianized. It's, you know, there's former journalists, you know, civil servants, all sorts of people working in the, the police um, the police press office. But when I first started being a journalist, being someone who came from like a very sort of nationalist, you know, Republican community, I remember phoning the um, the RUC press office one day and there was a, a woman who worked there and I have, I'd never met her. I'd never seen her, but I have an image of what she looked like in my head. She was a very stern woman, you know, and I imagine she, you know, long after the changeover, I think she would have reluctantly let go of her RUC uniform. But I remember <laughs> phoning her about a story that I was trying to cover about... Um, something that was happening up in, in Twinbrook Estate. And I said, you're hiya, you know, Salas and blah, blah, blah. Can you get me a line user raid in a house in Twinbrook? And she went, we don't raid houses, we search them. Oh. <laughs> I told you. Yeah. And I was like, never really thought of it that way. She was obviously not rude. But um, so there was, there was a sort of, I think it was like probably 98 and around that time in the early 2000s anyway, people were really hopeful that, that, um, there could be this massive transformation in society. There was a sort of euphoric feeling around it then that this would be the change that we needed. But society just didn't move as quickly as it was expected to move. You know, I think that one of the main problems, we want the 50-50 recruitment lasted for 10 years. You know, the mm. positive discrimination, that got an update, I think it was about 32%. And what did that involve? Were they going on campaigns into nationalist areas looking to recruit? Were they going into the schools and that kind of thing? They they were. They were also, you know, you would see ads for the PSNI in the um in the All Ireland inside the sort of brochures and things like that. You know, they would have sort of targeted um, you know, public awareness days. They started having police and partnership meetings in very Republican areas and often you'd get like this Republicans protesting outside those. There was a sort of outreach programme um, and the, the, the when the wheels started to come off that, well after the 10 years the, the 50-50 ended, it was expected that society would be normalised by then but Chris Patton was being a lot more hopeful <laughs> I think than, than what actually happened. Um, the problem and the main problem was that the legacy of the RUC 
and the legacy of police and was all caught up in the whole legacy process. And nobody come up, we got a process to deal with policing and we got a peace process, but nobody come up or implemented a process to deal with legacy. So legacy remained and legacy investigations into historic killings during the Troubles. That remained in the hands of the PSNI and the PSNI were not considered independent brokers by many people. And so every time, I think, you know, one of the people that I spoke to during the anniversary as part of a sort of series of articles I did, they said that past was like a bungee rope pulling people back. So every time the PSNI made, you know, five steps forward in terms of community policing and recruiting more nationalists and having more, um, you know, people in high profile positions, you know, you know, people out in their shirts, short sleeve shirts, you know, patrolling rather than people in, you know, the TSG rat gear. Um, and every time that they thought they were making some kind of progress, then, you know, a legacy report or a report of collusion that existed during that time would come along and like a bungee rope that would pull those officers mm-hmm back to the past, and that was how people viewed it. So that was one of the major problems. But the dissident Republican threat, obviously, was one of the serious problems. And what happened around the sort of 10 years into the the, the Patton report was there was a, a police officer called Patter Heffron. He had been a Gaelic player. He was one of the people he played for the PSNI's Gaelic team. Um, he was an Irish speaker and they used him almost like a sort of poster boy for the PSNI. So he would show up at police and board meetings and speak in Irish. You know, they would throw him to the front anytime they could, you know, to say this is the new face of the PSNI. And that almost painted a target on the back of Pater Heffron's back. So um, in 2001, I think it was, he was driving to work and a bomb exploded under his car. He was very lucky that he didn't die because, but suffered horrific injuries. He lost a leg. He's permanently confined to a wheelchair. Um, you know, he's done some interviews of, you know, a few years ago with that and was really very angry about the, the whole process and how he was treated. But that was almost like the dissidents were purposely at this stage targeting nationalists and Catholic officers. Um, Ronan, um, Rodokara, who was one of the, there's only been three, you know, two members of the PSNI killed by dissidents. Rodokara was a very young new recruit. He was stationed in Oma and his family were from Tyrone, but he had family from West Belfast and he was targeted under car bomb and, and murdered. And at that point, it was, the dissidents were almost purposely target members of their own community as a warning to say, if you join these people, well, we will consider you a legitimate target. But also remember for them, getting information and targeting information is much easier. Getting it on a Catholic officer than getting it on someone from the, the Protestant or Unionist community. Because people talk, you know, mm. the talk in the shops and in the bars and are such and such as we lad has joined the cops, you know, so it was easier to get information to target those people. So that has been, I think, a, a real put off to many young mm. nationalists. I mean, I wouldn't join, I mean, I said, I was going to say, I do do a job where I'm under threat, so I don't even remember to say this, but I wouldn't <laughs> purposely, I don't think when I left school or, you know, you know, I thought I'm going to go and do a job where I'm going to spend all day under threat and live behind cameras. I mean, that wasn't my main aim, um, no. but that's, that was, that is became a reality. So there's a number of factors that I think have really hindered that progress and we're not where we should have been. And then also in terms of politicians, there was a lot of times maybe Sinn Féin and other politicians paid lip service to the PSNM. It's going, oh, yes, we think people should join. But would you believe it was only last year that Michelle O'Neill and Jerry Kelly, the Sinn Féin um, 
Deputy Leader, and Jerry Kelly was former minister. He's a senior member of Sinn Féin, former IRA prisoner. They attended a PSNI recruitment event, and that was the first time someone from that party had attended a recruitment event, and that was almost 20 years after the existence of the organisation. So that was their first serious sign that they were backing this. But sort of... um between 2000 and say 2000 and 2010, the first 10 years of this, 2011, there was a massive amount of money pumped into this. There was 500 million or something spent getting rid of, four, well, sorry, giving early retirement to 4,000 or so senior RUC officers who were seen probably, maybe they wanted to retire, they didn't want part of this new process or they were seen as part of that old guard. And despite that, and despite coming up to 32%, you say, of Catholic recruits by 2010, did that look as if it was going in the right direction maybe and that it was going to continue or what's happened? So in terms of that pattern, you know, um, the early retirement package, it was the most lucrative ever offered anywhere in the world. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. You know, they were getting a big lump sum and then a very generous pension. And so many took that pension and went on because remember at that stage, because the RUC was security policing, a lot of them went on to do very lucrative jobs doing security in the Middle East and all sorts of other places. Um, some of them went straight out the door and straight back in again as civilian staff. So they were rehired to do basically their same role working in um, investigations branches, but being paid civilian staff while having their patent, ref- patent package. And that I would love that. A lot to of happen. problems. <laughs> Yes, I mean we all we all would, and that wasn't actually discovered until a few years in that a recruitment agency was just hiring former RUC officers and sent them straight back to where they came from, but they were getting paid and also had their their patent as well. That was very controversial. Sinn Féin didn't sign up to patent immediately. There was um, terms of issues they had in relation to unionism was obviously trying to chip away at it. They didn't like a lot of aspects of it. It had they waited until some of it was put till it was all put into legislation. And then they had a special Ardèche where they voted um, to join the policing board. So as part of Patton, as well as having a brand new police service, it also had these oversight and sort of um, that was part of, I think, the, the problem that people were saying, well, it'll just be the same thing. And Patton was saying, well, no, there will be oversight as to how it's operated. So we have a policing board, which has both civilian and political members on it, and a police ombudsman where you can complain. Um, if you have an issue with the, the PSNI and they will investigate it. The Sinn Féin didn't join the policing board until I think it was about 2005. And at that point, this is really interesting, I always think. I remember having to write a story in relation to Sinn Féin joining the policing board. And I spoke to a former IRA prisoner who was not a member of Sinn Féin, who just had been an IRA prisoner and had spent a significant amount of time in prison. And I said to him, do you think that now the police it is something that the community and the Republican community will accept. And he had said to me at that time, oh, fully. And I, you know, he had young children at that time. And he said, I would expect that my daughters or sons could go on and join the PSNI, that, you know, they could be raised up through the ranks, that they could be, you know, and that they could leave their house in, you know, West Belfast or North Belfast in their PSNI uniform and go in the car and go to work as if it was a normal job. That never happened. It just didn't happen. Um, I know there, and I've spoke to a few officers in, in terms of the features I've done in the last few weeks who come from nationalist communities and they now have to leave their homes when they join the PSNI. They have to go and live elsewhere. They can't play for their Gaelic teams anymore. 
they can't socialise in the same bars maybe they would have done when they were growing up. They have to basically abandon some of their friends. They have to tell people in some occasions lies about what they do for a living and they can't tell them that they're a police officer. Um, you know, one of them was telling me that they can only visit their family um, at their, you know, at their relative's place of work. They can't go to their home because they don't want their, you know, their family to become a target for dissident Republicans as well. Um, so there has you're being asked asking someone to give up quite a lot yeah. just for a job, and you know, if you would have to really, really, really want to be a police officer, I think to give up all of that to go and do that job. But interestingly enough, that ex-prisoner who I spoke to back in 2005, his children obviously did not go on to join the PSNI, but they did go into government. And at mm. least two of them that I know of work up in Stormont, up in up the, the devolved parliament. So isn't it interesting that that section of hardline republicanism, that at that stage maybe felt, well, okay, maybe we can transform this police service that we would be acceptable to us. Instead, the difference that they just sent their children, the difference their children went in, was into mm. politics, basically into politics, because they thought that's where they could make more of a difference. Was that figure from 2010, the 32% Catholic, 66% Protestant, was that the, the all-time high? And did it, has it been, does it remain around that or has it gone down since? It is around that, but it's reducing. So it's reducing in terms of recruitment. I think there was only about 26% of nationalists who um, were applied, who were accepted, who joined the PSNI last year. Um, and that's gone down. And also, if you go up into the higher ranks, they practically disappear from existence. So, you know, when you go up into, you know, detective chief superintendent ranks, and especially those sort of high ranking assistant chief constables, deputy chief constables, not since Peter Sheridan, who retired 12 years ago, 14 years ago, has there been a Catholic in that sort of top team of the PSNI. And are they dropping out? I mean, you should be seeing them now if they were in their 20 years coming up into those higher ranks. Yeah, a lot of them have, have jumped, jumped out and or went to other places, went to other forces. So this is a problem that the PSNI are having, not just in relation to nationalist recruits, but also in relation to women and, and, and other recruits as well. The guards have taken quite a few um, members of the PSNI. Well, we know that the old sort of RUC story style, Drew Harris, is is the Garda Commissioner, but you've also got people like Paula Hillman, who was one of the rising female stars, very working class woman from North Belfast. She's currently with the Guards. Barbara Gray, who was expected to be the first female Chief Constable is with the Metropolitan Police. She's gone there. Una Jennings, who was one of the very first Catholic recruits to the PSNI back in those early days of 50-50 recruitment. I think she's with the Yorkshire Constabulary. Um, they tend to move, and that to me would be one of the questions that would need answered. Do they feel that the career opportunities don't exist for them? Is there still that old boys culture within there that they feel that their careers are best served to go other places? And that's not just in relation to people who are, you know, nationalist recruits, but also women. But also, you know, 20 years on, you reflect that regardless of the sort of green-orange makeup of the PSNI, it is a very white police force. You know, there are we have, you know, so many people who have came here, you know, in the last 20, 25 years and made this place their home um, and people who have contributed to society. But the PSNI simply isn't doing a great job of attracting those people into their ranks. Um, the carry on over the Black Lives Matter protests last year, where there was fines handed out to people who were organising the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of, of George Floyd's death. But a few days previous to that, the Ombudsman had found that, you know, those far right save our statues. People had a protest, not a single fine was handed out to them by the PSNI. The PSNI in the end had to apologise and return those fines. They've all been refunded 
because they were told that they were not handed out properly. Um, and so things like that haven't helped. You know, so we talk about the past being a barrier to, to modern policing, but sometimes there are, you know, significant cock-ups that happen in terms of what's going on. We did, and I think I discussed it with you, the sort of South Armagh policing and the South yeah. Armagh policing report. I mean, the reaction to some, you know, unionist politicians in relation to that, you know, calling for the chief constable to resign and all sorts of other things because of these sort of progressive sound and policing measures. So we do still, I think that the problem in part, I think, has been with the, the development and management of the PSNI, but the problem is more to do with society and how we have developed or not developed, as the, the case may be. Mm. And Simon Byrne is the current chief constable of it. So he, I noticed in the interview you did with him in recent weeks, has said that he intends to serve out his period of time in it. And he has defended really everything from from what I could see that has happened or that he's been criticised for. Um, he's defended the stance with women. There's been some complaints made about sexual harassment made by women officers um, and he's pretty much just defended everything. Is he intent totally on staying out or does he, you know, I mean, would maybe a, a shake-up at the top help at this point? It's interesting because part of the policing, the policing board, which was set up obviously by Patton, they get to appoint senior officers, they get to interview them, so they get to appoint the chief constable, they get to interview whoever is going to be chief constable and so they appointed Simon Byrne. It was a bit of a shock. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I haven't told this to anyone. I was in a hurry that day and we were waiting on them coming out to say who had been appointed the next chief constable. And I had already written my story with someone else appointed okay. as chief constable as if it had already happened and was just sitting waiting on the announcements that I could hit say, no, no, and I come back and it was him. And I was like, what? Simon bloody Byrne? Had to delete the whole thing and start again. Um, <laughs> nobody really thought... <laughs> that he was going to be appointed chief constable. Um, the problem is, I What's think... What's his that, background, Alison? Where's he from? He had been a chief constable in England. He hadn't been in work. I think he'd, he'd left his previous job. There had been allegations made of bullying, which were not upheld in his, his previous job. Um, he had been in the Met for a while. He'd moved around. He has quite a, you know, an impressive CV. But one of the other people who had applied to join, I'm sort of giving away who had written a story about now, was John Boucher, who is the head of Operation Canova also a former English police officer, but someone who has really got to grips with this place. And he's doing those um, independent investigations into a lot of the legacy cases and the Glen Allen gang and steak knife and all that. Um, and I just thought he was a shoe-in for it. I really did. You know, and anyone I'd spoke to thought the same thing. Um, and so we were all a little surprised when, when Simon Byrne got it. He's two and a half years still left. I don't know whether he'll manage to survive the whole two and a half years. There were calls after the, the Bobby Story funeral debacle for him to resign. You know, there was been calls for him to resign after the South Armagh report. I mean, he's constantly being asked to resign, but never does. Um, no, so he, he could hold on. I mean, but whoever gets the job is just going to inherit the same problems. The, the problem is, I think that 20 years ago, the feeling was we can't have someone who was RUC as chief constable because it will never be seen as independent. And we've had police officers who have been brought in from outside so in my time just as a journalist during that 20 year handover it was Ronnie Flanagan former RUC you know that was a man who was RUC days you know backbone if you cut him open it would have been RUC right through him he's seen the, the handover and he would have exposed he was probably needed at that time because of the resistance of the old school of the officers to sort of bring them along because they considered him one of their own 
Um, then we had Yushu Ord, who again was English, but had been part of the Stevens investigation team. So he sort of got this place and he was grand. And then I remember being told that Matt Baggett was going to be the peacetime chief constable. He came in, he wanted to put policemen on horses and on the Falls Road. My God, the ideas that he had, we were all going to be, you know, cuddling coppers by the end of the week. And then the Loyalist flag protest happened and the wheels fell off his show right soon after that. Um, and that was the, the end of him. He left, he left early. And then we did have a, a chief constable, George Hamilton, who had been former RUC. Um, he managed to skate through his time without major, major controversies. But I think that the problem was that he continually defended um, the RUC in terms of those legacy investigations when he could have really just said, you know, that was then, this is now. I accept mm. the findings of it, you know, and, and move on. Um, and then obviously we've got Simon Byrne. So, I mean... Who repeatedly keeps saying that he had kind of a very short period of time to learn 400 years of history, which yeah, I, was I wish he'd stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, I felt like saying that in that interview, sorry, it's 800 years. Where do you get the 400 from? I go back further. My God, let me get you some more history books. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that when people come here, you know, come here, they, they don't understand. We live in a very bizarre place and the complexities of our society are quite odd. And it takes some people quite a while to get to grips with them. We live in a very divided society, regardless of the fact that we've had a peace process. There are parts of Northern Ireland which are booming and which have felt the peace dividend. And, you know, and when you go into them, you wouldn't, you know, sectarianism has gone completely out the door because people are economically better off and they're, they're thriving. And then there's parts where you would think there hasn't even been a peace process. Mm-hmm. If you go into the Craigan area up in Derry, you know, if you were a 15-year-old living there, you'd been born into peace. But you'll only ever see police in a Land Rover, you know, dressed in rack clothes. You'll never see, you know, a police officer in his, his shirt sleeves, you know, out walking the beat. And that's just the, the, the fact is there's some places have progressed more than more than others. We've seen mm. that with South Armagh and what was going on down there where it just hadn't progressed to normalised policing. Um, I think that, you know, the, the time is what we're asking, you know, we'd like to, I mean, obviously, like anything, you need the best person for the job. But I think it would send out, you know, a, a signal that it had completely transformed. Do we have, you know, could we have a, a female chief constable? Could we have a, a chief constable who had been PSNI only, who had joined, you know, 20 years ago and, and had never been RUC but was from here? You know, would those things be accepted? You know, it, it, at one stage, you know, we've had all sorts of people apply for the job. It's a very well-paid job because of the dangers that are accessed with it. And also it's a job that gives stepping stones to other places. So people who have been chief constable do go on to do those massive jobs for private companies in terms of security and all of those sort of things. So, I mean, it has its attractive mm. aspects to it. But it, but again, you know, if you come here and you think, well, the peace process was 20 odd years ago, all I need to do is go run and, you know, shake them up and, you know, try and get money to build nice, happy, shiny, glass and steel police stations and things like that, you're going to be wrong because, you know, there's the, this legacy of our conflict lingers and everything. And policing here is very political. You know, every chief constable I've ever interviewed says, I want to take the politics out of policing, but they can't because policing and, and politics here they're, they're attached in such a way that it's almost impossible to untangle the two. Having filleted poor Simon Byrne, I do have to ask you, what are the plans now for a new recruitment drive? And are we back to a place where there's a push again to bring more nationalists in to the yeah. PSNI? Well, they've ruled out bringing back 50-50, which some people have said should be brought back. 
Instead, they're saying they're going to do outreach, they're going to go out into communities, they're going to hold face-to-face workshops, and that will involve going to schools and other places like that as well. Um, But also, I thought it was interesting that despite the fact that the force remains predominantly Protestant, he also said that they were going to make an effort to go out and do outreach in working-class loyalist communities. Obviously, because of the protocol and everything that's happening, we have seen unrest on the streets in loyalist communities last April and most recently this week. There's been two buses set on fire in in parts of, of Northern Ireland by loyalists who are opposed to the protocol. The, the report into the Bobby Story funeral when it was clear that no one was going to be fined for breaching coronavirus regulations in relation to that, that sort of sparked the unrest that happened here in April, which looked like it was really in danger of getting out of control and turned into something quite nasty. But, and you know, one day when someone's writing the history of this, they'll go, is that really what happened? But it is. But Prince Philip died and they called off all the riots and protests out of respect for the royal family and that's how it stopped. It only stopped because Prince Philip died and they said they'd have a breakfast funeral and then it never started again afterwards. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's no allegations being levelled that there's two-tier policing and that policing is more favourable to nationalists than it is to loyalists. There is no statistical evidence to back this up. But, you know, we live in a, a sort of post-truth society where you just need to say something on Twitter enough times and it becomes reality and that that is what's happened. You know, the allegations that there is two-tier policing and that will just stick. Whereas I always think if you go into somewhere like a Craig in or South Armagh and ask them, do you think that you're being, you know, there's two-tier policing in favour of nationalists, they'll not agree with you. Um, so part of that recruitment drive is to try and get working class loyalists. And interesting, if you went back to Patton went back to, you know, 20 years ago, when I was speaking to Judith Gillespie, who had been the highest ranking female officer at that time, when she retired, she was deputy chief constable. She actually was acting chief constable for a few weeks just during a period of transition. But she said that when the recruitment started, the 50-50 recruitment, they were accused of recruiting the wrong type of Catholics. They said, well, they're very middle-class Catholics that you're recruiting. You know, they're not people from Republican communities. They're not people from nationalist communities. Um, but I always think maybe is that the way of policing around the world? I don't know. Maybe in places like America, whatever, it's maybe considered a work-class career. But I just have always assumed that policing, no matter where you go, is something that's quite a sort of middle-class aspiration. I don't know. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's certainly the same down here. It would be seen as a very middle-class occupation to go for. Um, and finally, I'd ask you, Alison, with that threat from the dissidents, the new IRA and you know, in particular, I think the new IRA would be the, 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 the leading force in that. Are the PSNI doing enough to police that threat against their own officers? Well, you know, this is interesting because, as you know, just because I was covering it so much this week, I spoke to a Catholic officer who had originally came from quite a Republican community. He's had to leave that, obviously. You know, he lives somewhere else. You know, he's had to leave behind his childhood, basically, and go and live somewhere else. And one of the things that he expressed... Um, a concern of the fact was that those distant groups are really heavily infiltrated by MI5 and special branch. You know, we've seen that with the amount of arrests there's been in the last two years. Um, you know, they can hardly move without getting arrested. But at the same time, he was saying, you know, that he was being targeted and told that he was being targeted as a Catholic officer by a specific organisation, that he had known that the people who were orchestrating this threat against him and his family were also people who were in the Payo Special Branch. And he had complained and said he was going to leave the, the police because 
Where is the ethics in paying an informer who's trying to kill one of your colleagues um, and not arresting them, you know? And I put that to the chief constable. He claimed that there is oversight. There was always the argument that special branch or C3 is or no now. We're a force within a force and we're completely unaccountable and could do what they want in terms of running informers. And there has been police ombudsman reports that have shown that they're running informers who are actually murdering people and they were letting them away during the troubles. But you don't, you know, you would like to think that those things don't still exist. They would argue that, oh, well, we're protecting life by getting that information and passing it on. But at the same time, too, if there were that those are the people who are responsible for it, who are trying to kill one of their colleagues, you would imagine that they would be more interested in arresting them and getting them behind bars than, you know, letting them away without giving them some sort of immunity as an informer. Um, I mean, how common that is, I don't know. That was, and this was just a random person that I had chosen to interview, and this was the story they told me. So, you know, I had no reason to doubt what they told me. There's no reason to tell me anything that wasn't true. And they actually said it was a, a for, an older person, a former member of the RUC, who convinced them to stay on, you know, and said, you know, no, the only way things will change is that people like you stay. You know, if you go, you're given into them and, you know, we'll never change and, and transform it in that way. So um, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if we can back and spoke in 10 years' time whether things would be much different. It requires a huge societal change. It's not just the job of the chief constable to do outreach or, you know, of political parties to say, right, well, okay, we're going to attend a recruitment event. I think that there needs to be a huge societal change and also that needs to, you know, that dissident Republican threat needs to be eradicated as well. I mean, nobody, I don't think that anyone wants to put their children into a car that they have to look underneath first before they get into it. And that's that's just the reality, I suppose, of, of still being a police officer. And when I was speaking to some of the police officers about Patton and I had said, you know, how did you feel about the change? Well, I was willing to sacrifice the name and the uniform and everything that went with it if I could live a normal life and not have to check under my car every morning. And then I thought, well, but you still had to check under your car. So nothing really particularly changed that much. No, indeed. I mean, it sounds like absolutely that, um, you know, being told that before you go into employment, some of us find ourselves in that position stupidly having... The fool dust, the lured us in and didn't tell us. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes to the door one time and tells you you're under threat. And I went, well, I just expected that. But I mean, if you go into the cops, you go with your eyes open that that's going to be part of the reality of your life. Well, that's it. I mean, certainly if I could uh, put myself in that position going back, I think I might have shown a keener interest perhaps in fashion journalism or something like that. We could be writing for Hello Magazine now. We could, you know, know. We could be interviewing celebrities for OK. Drinking <laughs> champagne. <laughs> Alison Morris, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Have you heard the news? 
The Irish Independent has a new podcast. We're not in the fairy tale business as journalists. We're in the truth business and the question we're there. 20 minutes, five days a week, the Indo Daily takes you beyond the headlines and into Ireland's most talked about stories. So 25 years on, people are absolutely fascinated again with this case. The Indo Daily podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, independent.ie and wherever you get your podcasts.